It's the Basketball Hall of Fame's Legends Podcast. I'm Kyle Belanger. Joining me today is Dick Bavetta. Yes, that Dick Bavetta, a 2015 Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame enshrinee, a man with 39 years of officiating in the NBA who retired in 2014, and that stretch included a remarkable 2,635 consecutive games. Dick, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's an exciting experience for me. I'm really looking forward to it, Kyle. Thank you so much for having me. Dick, I love, I, gosh, I was in attendance at Symphony Hall when you went into the Hall of Fame in 2015, and one of my favorite enshrinement speeches of all time belongs to you. It was such an incredible testimony to a guy who started on Wall Street and ended up in Rucker Park and then Madison Square Garden. Can you talk to us uh, about that decision to walk away from, you have an MBA in finance, you are a Wall Street stockbroker. Can you talk to us about that decision all those years ago to step away from that life and to maybe join the only lifestyle more stressful than Wall Street? Um, it was an interesting experience, to say the least. Uh, I was very much influenced by my older brother, Joe, who is a uh, retired New York City police detective and uh, actually refereed in the ABA uh, from uh, 68 to 74. So... He kind of preceded me in the officiating profession, um, living in Brooklyn, New York. We, we were made accessible to so many different avenues to referee, be it Catholic high schools, public high schools, summer leagues, like you mentioned, uh, the Rucker, uh, Summer Pro League, Jersey Shore League, and things like that. So the opportunities were there if we wanted to pursue it. I never really thought that much about it, and um, in actuality, my brother... Uh, kind of moonlighted as a referee. In those days, as a police officer, you were allowed to have another job, and that's exactly what he did. And um, so he used to talk about his experiences both in the Eastern League, which is where he started and ultimately where I started, um, and then into the American Basketball Association. So it, it became a thing where when I finished school and worked on Wall Street, in those days, employee leagues had... Um, softball tournaments, they had basketball leagues, they had bowling leagues. There was an emphasis on the employees in those days. So there was a Wall Street basketball league that I kind of evolved to and played once a week with them. I worked for Solomon Brothers, and uh, as it turned out, uh, my brother refereed in the league and um, uh, didn't referee any of the games that I played in, but one night that he uh, refereed the first game, and uh, I was there watching him. Uh, a referee did not show up for the second game, and he said to me, uh, baby brother, come on, referee with me. We'll, we'll do this. I'll drive you home afterwards, and we'll go from there. And I said, I don't know anything about refereeing. And he looked at me and said, well, neither do I. <laughs> so between the two of us, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of fake our way through and and get the game done and go home together. And I said, okay. So I started with him that evening. And as it evolved, um, he said, I, I think this is something you should try and like it. And basically, it was like going back to school. They had Monday night classes uh, for basketball instruction with the rules and things like that. And because he had preceded me, um, he had the contact in the Catholic high schools and public high schools in New York City. So he made some phone calls. I mean, it would be like an accreditation. I'm not trying to compare myself in any way to a doctor or to an attorney, but 
when when you you take a bar exam or, you, or a medical exam, and, and now you're accredited, but you still need patients, you still still need clients. So the fact he said, at least take this test, get accredited, and then we'll see what we can do about getting you gains. Well, he had the natural market for that. I mean, he was able to call coaches and say, can you get my kid for other freshman game or thing like that. So it evolved from that, where I just started doing Catholic high school games. He knew the people in the Eastern League, convinced them that I was a lot more experienced, that in actuality I was. I worked games with him, and it was a comfort level of working games with him where he would just take care of me and make sure I got through the evening without too much of a riot in the game. I <laughs> love that. Talk about trying to minimize harm, right? Just make sure the riot isn't too big. Your brother Joe... Well, and being the New York City police detective and people kind of knew what he did, there was very little pushback with the calls that he made. And um, he certainly made it known that I was his, his kid brother and if there was any discussions during the evening, they should all be directed to him and not to me. I love that. I love that. Now, you also immortalized your brother, Joe, in your enshrinement speech. Uh, when you went into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, talking about that really beautiful advice that he gave you early on about treating players and coaches and speaking to them uh, with respect, with the respect that that you expected people to speak to you with. And I'm wondering, 2,635 games later in the NBA, how important was that moment, that lesson, and, and, and Dick Bavetta being open to that lesson and getting you uh, uh, the, the beginning, the middle, and the end of that streak? Well, I think in general, it's a life lesson that doesn't necessarily adhere itself in particular to basketball. I mean, working with people uh, in any profession. Uh, respect is, is a quality that is necessary for communication. And um, as far as I was concerned, my credo was to give respect, to get respect. And that was before I even started refereeing, and, and to be uh, a good listener. And uh, I found that that was something that my brother taught to me, that you, know, you deal with people as people. And it was a very humbling experience for me uh, in 1968, to go up to the Harlem Pro Rucker League. I had asked, uh, you know, an African friend of mine, Lou Jones, who I also made reference to in my acceptance speech, I said, I need games to referee during the summer. Where do I go? And he started to laugh. And, he, and I said, what, why are you laughing? And he said, the best players in the world are at 155th Street and 8th Avenue. And I said, how do I get there? Well, you take the Harlem River Dart, and he said, you do realize that it's predominantly an African-American league. I said, are the best players in the world playing in there? And he said, yeah. And I said, that's where I want to go. And I, I, the first time I went up there, I had made mention to my wife and my daughters and my neighbors that that particular Saturday afternoon, because they played Skippy Weekend, that I was going to 155th Street and 8th Avenue to referee a game in the Harlem Rocket Pro League. And um, when I left the house with my little bag, you would think that I was getting into a wagon train heading for the West Coast because people had placards up, my neighbors. Hope we get to see you again. You know, hope you are safe in your travels. I mean, they thought that they'd never see me again, the fact that I was leaving to go referee games in Harlem. And when I got there, I was so embraced. Uh, 
a gentleman that I had known for a lot of years, was Tiny Archibald. And when I walked into the Rucker Playground, it was like the old E.F. Hutton commercial where when E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. It's like players were warming up, taking shots, and I walk in with my, my, my daughter Christine and my daughter Michelle, one on each hand, and everybody stopped. And they looked at me, and they were thinking to themselves, this guy's either the greatest referee in the world, or he's crazy. <laughs> and when I walked in, Tiny Archibald walked over to me and put his arm around me and looked at people and said, he's my friend, he's with me. Let him do his job. Gosh. And the rest is history. I just refereed in that league for 20 years, from 1968 to 88. Saw the greatest uh, players in the world. Um, I mean, there were so many players. I mean, one year there was a team that had the old ABA players. It was Julius Irving and Billy Coles and Brian Taylor and all these great players, Riley Keenan. And they didn't win the tournament. They were beaten by basically a group of unknown people, great, great players. And when I finally was fortunate enough to be selected to get into the NBA in 75, people said, do you think you'll find it difficult refereeing? And I said, I'm ready to referee because for all the years that I had spent up to that point, almost 10 years in the referee, I was prepared because I had seen so many of these players during the summer playing and was prepared for it. So it's just an example of honing your craft the best you can and taking every opportunity to improve yourself be humble about it, be respectful about it, and treat everyone equally. What an incredible story. And it did. It took you 10 years uh, in the Rucker League and 10 years of honing your craft before you finally got that call to work a game between the Celtics and the Madison, in Madison Square Garden against the Knicks. But your career really took off. The, the, the notice of Dick Bavetta, the referee, really took off in the 80s. One game in particular, which I... I, I, every time I watch it, I get chills. Your partner, Jack Madden, and you refereeing a game between the Celtics and the Sixers. Jack breaks his leg mid-game, and you had to work alone. People might not yeah. know that, but they know the part that has gone down in history as the moment where Larry Bird and Julius Irving both end up with their hands on each other's throats. They begin to strangle each other. I'm talking with the words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny because it was joking. What was interesting about the game was in November of 1984, and it was the the rivalry of the Sixers and the Celtics with 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 Bird and Irving and stuff like that. And Dennis Johnson was diving for a loose ball and kind of rolled into Jack Madden and and broke Jack's leg, and they kind of carried him off into the locker room and. We're waiting to find out whether he can come back or not, and then we find out he can't. So I went to Casey Jones and Billy Cunningham, and I said, guys, uh, I'm going to work as hard as I can. I'm going to do the job of two referees, and I need your cooperation. And it was like talking to a, a, like a blank wall. They're nodding their heads like, yeah, right. Yeah, we'll cooperate. And um, what happens is they assured me that they would, try to make my job as easy as possible. Well, eight objections and six technical fouls later, I realized that, you know, I had to try to do the best I can and I wasn't really getting cooperation from anyone. But what I remember about the game is, um, well, many things. Uh, 
the fact that Cunningham started mouthing off to me in the second half, and I called a technical foul on him and thrown him out of the game. So when I walk over to the table in Boston, the old garden, um, scorekeeper says, Dick, you're throwing him on one technical? And I said, uh, no, that's his second technical. And he said, no, that's his first. I said, gee, I, I heard an announcement in the first half that Jack Madden had called a technical on Billy Cunningham. So that would be his second. And he said, no, Jack came over later and changed it and put the technical on Matt Gukas, the assistant coach. So Billy Cunningham really only has one technical foul. What do you want to do? So I said, well, he didn't do enough to be ejected. Let's send someone into the locker room to tell him he can come back out and continue to coach the rest of the game. <laughs> so they go get him, they bring him out, and then the post-game interview, and the Celtics end up winning easily, so to speak. And Billy Cunningham said, you know, I really respect Dick Pavetta a lot now after watching what he did, but having to leave the arena the first time and having people pour beer on top of me and throw peanuts and everything you can imagine as I left the arena, okay, that's something that I, I endured. But to have to come back out and endure it a second time, I, I didn't think that that was something that I had to do. So he laughed about it, and, and what happened is he said, to paraphrase basically, he said, for a man in his capacity to have the courage to eject two superstars uh, showed me a lot. And and I respect him a great deal because of that. And that, that kind of was, was a, uh, a highlight game for me in that people in the NBA office kind of looked at me a little differently. I want to believe that they saw some leadership qualities or leadership ability and said, Let's give him an opportunity to be a crew chief, which I became the next year. And um, but it just gives you a, a lot of confidence in being able to experience that situation. And it was the years that I refereed in the Rucker League, the Catholic High School Public Schools, all these different leagues that allowed me to understand what needed to be done under those circumstances and not be intimidated in any way. Two more questions for the incredible Dick Bavetta, who we're speaking to here on the basketball. You, you humble me with these words. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a referee. I don't mind being incredible, but thanks to that, Kyle. <laughs> well, I wanted to talk to with with two more questions left, Dick, about um, your transition, because you talk about that moment in the 80s when the recognition started coming in and the crew chief uh, and the crew chief title and all of the new roles and responsibilities and leadership. And then later in your career, you really were, became sort of an ambassador between the officials uh, and the players. I think about your relationship with Charles Barkley and, and, and the race that we all watched on, on national television. Can you talk about... It was great because it really put yeah. a, it put a face on officials. Can you talk about the responsibility maybe that you felt later on as an ambassador between officials and the public? Well, I found that there was an influx of college coaches coming into the NBA in the, in the 90s and then into the 2000s. And what was starting to happen is that coaches would say to me, you know, why can't this other official listen to what I have to say. You're always approachable. You always listen to what I have to say. So uh, 
being happily married uh, was a trait that I learned that in order to be happily married, you should have selective hearing. And especially at the dinner ta table when I'm being chastised about not being home for birthdays and things like that, I would just look up and smile. I had no idea what was being said and just moved on to the rest of the conversation. So I found out that listening to coaches sometimes became beneficial. And what would happen is that I found that players picked up on this, that they knew that they could approach me, explain to me what the problem is, and then I would say to them, let me get a better look at this play, let me look at it at halftime and things of that nature. And invariably what happens is if I were to look at a play at halftime and realize by the instant replay that we had in our locker room that I had missed the call, the first thing I would do when I walked out start the second half, I would go over to that player and say, I want to apologize to you. I made a mistake. I missed that call. And it's a humbling experience to them as well because when you admit your mistakes and that you erred in something, they understand that they're getting honesty here. Now, as far as Charles was concerned, I always try to look for common denominators with people, with players and things like that. And uh, Charles was very difficult on um, referees and me, with me in particular, you know, when he was with Philadelphia and then he was with Phoenix. Always had something to say, much like he is now. I mean, he's, he's just got to love the guy. But one particular game in Phoenix, um, he's giving me a tough time. And I remember that day in a USA Today article it mentioned that one of his hobbies, what he really enjoyed was watching soap operas. And that his favorite soap opera was All My Children. And so, you know, I try right away, and it's just particularly, it's like second period, he turns his up for a shot, you know, Elijah won. And what happens is that he thinks he blocked the shot. I call a foul. He now starts arguing, wanders off a timeout. And I said, Charles, you have to go back to your huddle. You can't stand. He said, that was a terrible call. I said, no, it was a great call. And he blocked it. You know, in your opinion, I said, but you fouled him. There's no question there was a foul on the floor. So now I, I kind of put my arm around a little bit, and I start walking him back towards the tunnel, and I said, by the way, did you watch All My Children today? <laughs> he said, what? I said, did you watch All My Children today? He goes, no. I said, how about Tad is involved with a waitress at the diner I said, Erica Kane is now fooling around with a show. So he said, you've got to be kidding me. So I said, no. I said, so just enjoy your time out. you have any problems, speak to It never bothered me after that. I mean, the only problem with that is that every time I had a game that involved Charles Barkley, I made sure that I watched all my children that day in case he gave me a, a quick question and answer thing about what took place. But... I just found that the common denominator with people is that by changing the topic a little bit, having a humanistic uh, approach to things, it, it just goes a long way. Now, you still have to get the place right, but if you put respect, humility, personality involved with these things, uh, people accept you a lot more, and, and the honesty is the most important thing. Dick Bavetta, I, I, it's, I, I know that these these superlatives are difficult to hear, but I, I this has been one of the best conversations I've had uh, in a long time. So one final question: What does it mean to you to be working with the Hall of Fame at this stage in your life? Well, 
it's a dream come true that I never knew I had to dream. I mean, when I retired in 14, I, I was just happy with my career. I just thought I would kind of dribble off into the sunset, as it were, but blow a few whistles out in my backyard, and that would be the end of it. But first of all, you know, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has blessed me uh, with good health through all my years. And, you know, I stood at the podium, you know, at Symphony Hall because of him. Uh, I'm not naive to think I'm such a hotshot referee because I'm really not. But for him to bless me with good health and the ability to have this career is it, it, just an amazing thing. So I give all the glory to him. But to have a dream with the Hall of Fame, I never thought of the Hall of Fame to not think of the Hall of Fame. In fact, when John DeLeva called me to say that, you know, I had been selected and was going in in September of 15, I thought it was a joke because there was one of my buddies fooling around with me, and then he said, no, this is not a joke. And I said, no, it's, in fact, the date that he calls is a Wednesday, April 1st, and I think it's an April Fool's Day joke. So uh, he finally convinced me, and I, and I, I just was overwhelmed, and... When it was over, I called my wife, and I said, we got the call. And she said, now what call would that be? <laughs> so I said, it came from the Hall of Fame. She said, yeah, right. She said, listen, you got me last year on April Fool's Day. You're not getting me two years in a row. I'm out with my girlfriends. I'm enjoying myself. I'll see you later at dinner time." So she didn't even believe it. So when we came home and I showed her, you know, the, the caller ID, and we got the call about it. To be involved with people like Fran Jenkins, John Deliva, and so many other people that love what they do, it's a family. And to, for the Hall of Fame people to embrace me the way they have, to allow me the honor and the privilege of going out to speak to people, youth groups, uh, special need kids, uh, go to a golf club, and I don't even play golf and I'm going to these things, and some of these people that are there and tell funny stories and things like that, but what an honor to be even allowed to do this. So it's just a dream come true for me to be involved with the people that are involved with the, with the whole thing. Trent took me around a couple of times, and when you meet the people, as I know you have, everybody is dedicated to their job, loves what they do, and there's one common goal, and that's to make the Hall of Fame a little bit better. So if I can embellish just a bit more by saying, you know, my task in life basically now is to let people know that uh, officiating is an honorable profession. That, uh, and when I sat there before going up to speak, I looked around, and my wife said to me, you have the speech ready yet? And I said, no, I'm still thinking about it. And I started laughing. She said, what are you laughing about? I said, I think 95, maybe 98% of the people sitting in Symphony Hall have never heard a referee speak. <laughs> and I said, they're probably saying to themselves, let's see what this guy's got to say. He probably can't put two sentences together grammatically correct. <laughs> and, and it was all over. I looked up. I saw Pat Riley run from the opposite side of Symphony Hall down the aisle up onto the stage, across the stage, down the aisle, I'm in, I'm stepping back, I said, stand back, everybody, I thought he had to catch a flight or something, and he stopped, he said, Dick Pavetta, you're amazing, I, I, I didn't know you could speak like this, if, if I did, I wouldn't have been yelling at you all these years. <laughs> so, to be able to 
uh, convey to people our livelihood. It's a wonderful experience. And I just thank you for allowing me to be a part of these podcasts. It's just a, a very humbling experience. And I don't know if I should refer to you as Professor Billington <laughs> because I know you're involved with you know, Springfield College and things like that. But thank you for allowing me to be one of your students today, really. Well, uh I, I, if if you can call me professor, I will call you Dr. Bavetta because what you've done in the course of your 39 years on the court is it's it's surgical the way you have slowed the game down for all of us. Dick Bavetta, a 2015 Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame enshrinee, 39 years on the NBA hardwood, 2,635 consecutive games officiated. Dick Bavetta, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. God bless you and your family.